0: Well, friends, what do you think? Are we going to have a victory parade in Phoenix in the coming
1: days? I admit I jumped fully on the Diamondbacks bandwagon a few weeks back. Uh, Cooper and I went to game five of the NLCS together last Saturday. And if uh, someone would like to skip a mortgage payment and buy us a ticket to the World Series, we would gladly go. At least the parade, if it happens, will be free. Uh, if the D-backs win, our heroes, the players, will ride atop—I assume—a cavalcade of of buses and process through our city as a, adoring fans line the streets to celebrate. You know, the idea of a of a victory parade is actually quite ancient. Its origin has nothing to do with sports, but with military conquest. Uh, in ancient Rome, uh, a parade in honor of a victorious emperor or general was literally called a triumph. Uh, the conquering Roman leader would would ride in his chariot, his army parading uh, around him and, and leading the captured leaders leaders and soldiers of the enemy army along with the spoils of war. And so friends, when you come to an event in Jesus' ministry, it's often called the triumphal entry you would expect to see something similarly grand, wouldn't you? You expect to see Jesus riding into Jerusalem, either on a chariot or, at the very least, on a war horse, the symbol of, of might and royalty and triumph. Instead, a picture presented to us of Jesus' triumphal entry looks more like a parody of triumph. There's no chariot, and there's no stallion, no royal guard to escort him. Instead, Jesus processes into the city on a young donkey, adorned with the clothes of his disciples. Now, ironically, what we're going to see this morning is that this very non-triumphal entry is part of the proof that Jesus is, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah King, who is even we've rehearsed this morning, reigns with the kingdom without end. Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Matthew 20. Matthew 20, it's on page 825 uh, of the Bible underneath your seat. Friends, if you didn't arrive at church this morning with a Bible, that that black Bible underneath the seat in front of you is there for you. If you don't have to own a Bible, well, by all means, take it home. Make it your own. Friends, over the last several weeks as we've studied uh, chapters 18 to 20 of Matthew's gospel together, we have just seen episode after episode of Jesus reversing our expectations about what his kingdom It's going to look like Jesus' kingdom is not for those who, who run to the front of the line, as it were. In their pride, it's for those who sprint to the back of the line in humility. Christ's reign is manifest through those who embrace the fact that the last shall be first and the first last. Two weeks ago, we left off in Matthew with Jesus, again upending his disciples' quest for importance by beckoning them to consider Him, the Son of Man, the promised King who came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. This morning, Jesus is going to continue to teach about the importance of selflessness, of compassion, of humility, but not so much by what He says, but by who He is and what He does. you want to know how the kingdom of God operates, well, just take a look. Its king. Let's start reading together in verse 29 of Matthew 20. We're going to read into chapter 21. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. He will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? The crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, the structure of this passage is straightforward. Verses 29 to 34 tell us about two blind men on the outskirts of Jericho who, despite the protests of the masses, drew the attention and the compassion of Jesus. Verses 1 to 11 of chapter 21, skip ahead in the journey to Jerusalem and record Jesus' final procession into the ancient city. It gives us a Matthew's editorial comment that the way things unfolded wasn't an accident. It was the fulfillment of the ancient words of Scripture about the coming King. Two points of the sermon this morning that will kind of mirror those two big sections. Number one, we're going to look at the King's compassion there at the end of chapter 20, the King's compassion. Number two, what we know is the triumphal entry on that first Palm Sunday, we'll look at the king's procession. The king's compassion, the king's procession. And I think the main idea, this, this big main point of the text that will become the main idea of the sermon, that these sections point us to is this. Friends, there's no question that Jesus is God's promised king. The question is, will you honor him as yours? There's no ambiguity in the text. There's no ambiguity in the Gospels. There's no lack of clarity from Jesus about who he is. He is indeed God's promised king, the long-awaited Messiah. The question is, will you honor him as your king and as your God? Friends, I pray the Lord would use his word in our lives this morning and to grant us, perhaps for the first time for some of you, that type of desire, a desire to honor King Jesus, to follow him by faith. We would all worship and recognize Jesus for who he is and what he's done. Number one, the king's compassion. Verse 29 of chapter twenty helps refresh the context for us. This event takes place as Jesus and his disciples are exiting the city of Jericho. Now, if you were with us uh, for our series in Joshua over the summer, uh, this is not the same Jericho where the walls came a-tumbling down, right? Uh, But it is located about a mile south of old Jericho. This little city of, of Jericho was the last stop that Galilean Jews would make at, on their on their annual pilgrimage south to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. After, after, after crossing uh, the Jordan River from the east, uh, the Galilean travelers would stop for rest in Jericho and then begin the 17-mile, 3,000-foot climb into Jerusalem. This, this helps explain why a great crowd followed Jesus, as verse 29 says, that most of this crowd was, was likely from Jesus' home region of Galilee. Uh, perhaps some of them had even seen with their own eyes the miracles that Jesus did. They had heard his teaching. Perhaps they, like Jesus' disciples, had messianic hopes of a political uprising and the overthrow of, of Roman power once Jesus reached Jerusalem. Matthew doesn't really dwell on the context for long, does he? He immediately draws our attention away from the the crowd on the road to two men on the roadside. Two men who, unlike the masses who were enjoying this vivid scene of the pilgrimage, could see nothing but darkness. They were blind. Mark and Luke give us more details in their Gospels. These men were sitting on the roadside because they were beggars. They were blind and destitute. You can imagine them filthy and smelly as they sat there in the dirt, hoping to God
0: there might be compassionate ones among the unusually large crowd that processed to Jerusalem. Praise God, there was one such man. Look at verse 30.
1: Behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, Matthew, in his typical to-the-point writing style, doesn't tell us exactly how these men came to know about Jesus. But obviously, the word of Jesus' miraculous works, his authoritative teaching in the north and Galilee had spread to the south in Judea. Uh, maybe the beggars had overheard the conversations of other travelers that day about the famous miracle-working rabbi who was about to pass through. doesn't really matter how they knew. What does matter is that they knew. They had heard about Jesus And they had already come to a predetermined conclusion about who he was. They're addressed to him as a dead giveaway. They didn't merely cry out, hey, rabbi, right? Teacher, Jesus. No, they call out with a far greater twofold title, Lord, Son of David. Of course, the title, Son of David, identifies Jesus as Israel's long-awaited Messiah, the king. 1,000 years before Jesus, the Lord promised Israel's great King David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne of God's kingdom and rule forever. This messianic hope that began there in 2 Samuel chapter 7 pulsates through the writings of the prophets as time and time and time again the prophets foretold of a new David who would come to bring God's salvation. He would come to crush the enemies of God's people and restore the world under God's reign. David's son, yet David's Lord. Do you remember how Matthew opens his gospel? Before even the narrative about Jesus' birth, he gives us what? the Genealogy, his ancestral line. And what does Matthew want us to see about Jesus right at the very beginning? The Jesus line is royal. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, the, the who? The son of David, the son of Abraham. Perhaps when Matthew penned this gospel, these words some 30 years after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, when he wrote the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, maybe even the voices of these two blind men were reverberating in his, in his memory. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Even though the two men had no physical eyesight, their cries were full of spiritual insight. They recognized Jesus who he was for who he was. But notice that's not the only title they give him. They not only addressed him as the son of David, but as their Lord. Did you see that? Lord have mercy on us. Beloved, I believe that these blind beggars were doing more than showing Jesus Typical deference and respect of a of a teacher in calling them them Lord, they knew that he possessed lordship over their disability. Perhaps they'd even heard of the time when Jesus earlier in his ministry had given sight to blind men. Their words have profound Christological implications. Their desperate cry echoes the words of numerous verses in the Psalms in which the psalmists cry out to Yahweh, the Lord God, for mercy. Be merciful to me, O Lord, Lord. Be gracious to me. Friends, if you have a Bible app on your phone or on your computer, just, just type in the words, be gracious to me or be merciful to me and look at all the Psalms that pop up in the search bar, all addressed to the Lord. The blind men plead with Jesus using the very words normally reserved for prayer to God. Their petition highlights what Matthew told us all the way back in chapter one. This virgin born child of Mary, this Jesus who would save his people from their sins is not only the long awaited King, he is Emmanuel, God with us. Friends, no wonder the blind men would not take shush for an answer, right? The crowd treated the men like the nobodies they thought they were. Pipe down over there, right? This man has no time for you. If you think he's the Messiah, then surely you know he has better things to do than to bother with bums like you. Well, Friends, the crowd's rebuke, it feels a lot like the disciples' reaction to the parents. Remember when they brought their children to Jesus? Similar indignation, similar misplaced priorities. Master doesn't have time for you. These blind men would not be silenced. And what we can only describe as tenacious faith, the crowd's rebuke only served to
0: increase the cries of the beggars in the dirt. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David.
1: And of course, the great irony of the situation is while the crowds had physical sight, they were blind to the spiritual realities and the priorities of Christ's kingdom. Meanwhile, the beggars in the dirt couldn't see the hand in front of their face, and yet by grace possessed a profound spiritual vision. They saw Christ for who he was with the eyes of their hearts, and they called, and they called, and they kept calling, and they kept calling to their Lord, their King. Friends, in, in Mark and in Luke's gospel, Uh, Those gospel writers emphasize the faith of the blind men a a bit more than Matthew. Matthew uh, seems to accent Jesus' pity, his compassion. But I do think Matthew also means for us to see this persistent, dogged faith of the blind men. Because when at first Christ didn't respond, they kept calling. When Jesus didn't initially stop walking, that didn't stop the beggar's from praying for mercy from Him. Beloved, well, I think one of, the, one of the dangers, one of the dangers that's kind of just baked into our current age, given the technological advances of our day, in which we have immediate access to a world of information by a click of the button, or a Hey Siri, Alexa, whatever it is, we can door dash a meal to our front porch in 15, 30 minutes. We can hop in a plane and, travel across the planet in less than a day, all those technological advances have conditioned us to expect Jesus to operate at our immediate whims. When we don't receive an answer to our prayers right away, we so easily give up. At least I do. Our prayer lives are weak because unlike the blind men, we've lost sight of the character of the one to whom we pray. We've forgotten that prayer isn't merely to give us what we want, but to develop within us the faith and the growth that God wants. Let the example of these men remind you of the value of persistent, faith-filled prayer. The good news about this type of persistent Prayer is that you don't have to do it alone. Sometimes, well, so often we conceive of, of prayer as this kind of me and God moment. Uh, certainly individual prayer is, is deeply personal. But one of the greatest gifts that God has given to us as believers is the local church. When we don't have the strength or faith to continue in prayer by ourselves, praise God, we have a family of brothers and sisters who join in with us in the petitions. Brothers and sisters, our, our twice-a-month Sunday evening prayer meetings, they're not merely for the prayer warriors among us. Our prayer gatherings are for the prayer weaklings too. And I, and I say that with a smile on my face in the kindest way because I often need to put myself in that latter category. But one of the things our prayer gatherings do is set for us a normal rhythm of persistence in prayer we call out to the Lord for the same things over and over and over again. Lord, Lord, use the the preaching and teaching of your word to open the eyes of the spiritually blind. Father, save our kids and our youth. Grant them new life in Christ. Oh God, draw unbelievers who come to our services to repentance and faith in you. Oh Jesus, would you please grant us a culture of evangelism, of of discipleship here at RGC. These prayers are on loop in the soundtrack of our church's prayer life. Why? Because Jesus hasn't heard us yet? No, because he always does. And prayer is the means by which he accomplishes his purposes through us. I think the the first two words of verse 32 are two of the most hope-filled words you could ever hear. And stopping. And stopping. I mean, the blind man's future hinged on these two words. And
0: stopping. Friends, praise God. Jesus heard the blind man's cries. He stopped. Let's remember that even though even though Jesus' destiny In Jerusalem, it was lost
1: on the crowds and even the disciples. Jesus knew what awaited him when he got there. He had predicted his sufferings, his death, and his resurrection three different times. So you can imagine the sorrow and the seriousness that filled Jesus' heart and mind as he walked out of Jericho and set his eyes on the road that led to Jerusalem. And yet, despite what awaited Jesus... He was not too encumbered by his own cares to care for the needs of others. He didn't view the blind men as an interruption to his mission, but as a critical element of it. When the crowd sought to shush the men, Jesus stopped for them. Verse 32, And stopping, Jesus called, called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? That question, that sounds a lot like the same question that He asked James and John's mother when she approached him earlier on the trip. You remember that? What do you want? Notice the men's response. The blind men's response. They said to him, Lord, let us sit on your right hand and on your left when you come into your kingdom. Oh wait, sorry. Wrong group. I got it mixed up. No, far friends from the rank grabbing pride of the disciples that we saw a couple weeks ago, these desperate men simply
0: asked, Jesus, Lord, let our eyes be opened. All we ask, Jesus, is that we might see.
1: It just so happened these men were in the presence of the one who designed the
0: human eye, the one who ordained every step of their life. Verse 34, Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him.
1: Friends, I think one of the responses to this text this morning is that we just need to praise God. That Jesus is not repulsed by the outsiders, by the marginalized. He's not put off by the needy. His heart is magnetized toward them. And so it is with you, friend, even this morning. The heart of Christ has not changed. He's the same today as he was yesterday and will be forever. So perhaps this morning, some of you just need to remember The truth that you have a king and a savior who knows your every need, every single one of them. He's not put off by your messy life or by your brokenness or even by your sin and rebellion against him. In fact, it's those very things that make you a prime candidate for Jesus's love. Friend, if you're struggling this morning, Please don't let your instinct be to go run and hide away from Jesus, but to run to him. Because the greater your need, the deeper his grace. Church family, what we see here of the Lord Jesus, I believe ought to shape our instincts toward people who are hurting. Those in our church family and in our community that may be on the fringes, on the
0: outside. These are the type of people that Jesus sees. And so should we. Friends, who is one person? Let
1: me just ask you a question. So easy sometimes to kind of skirt around the pastor's application. Let's make
0: it very specific. Who is one person in your sphere of influence this week whom you might display, to whom you might display the surprising mercy of Jesus? Just one person. Got that person in your mind? Someone in need? someone who's struggling, someone who needs encouragement. Friends, what might you do
1: to show the love of Christ, the compassion of Jesus to that person? Maybe it's a call, maybe it's a note, maybe it's a play date, maybe it's a meal, the list goes on. You be creative. What can you do to show the compassion of Christ? Let's not let ourselves off the hook because of busyness or whatnot. Jesus was literally headed to the
0: cross and he stopped.
1: Let's ask the Lord for his strength to stop and to see, to respond as well. Matthew says in verse 34 that Jesus' response here to the blind men was because of his pity for them. He answers the beggars' cries for mercy with a, a truckload of it, right? His touch is their healing, and it was immediate. This wasn't a take three doses and come see me next week type of thing. No, There's no, hey, you can expect to start seeing some shapes and some colors here in a few weeks. No, Matthew says that the scales fell off the men's eyes immediately, instantaneously. In a moment, the shadows of their darkness
0: gave way to light and color. And think of it, friends the very first thing these men ever saw was the face of their Lord. The beautiful countenance of the merciful son of David. Their brand new eyes beheld the gracious and tender smile of the man of sorrows. The one on his way to give his life for their sins and for the sins of all who would trust in him. Friends,
1: can there be any doubt who Jesus is? Isaiah 35.5 says of the Messiah's day, when the Lord will ransom his people, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf, um, deaf unstopped. Notice Matthew points out that two things happen immediately. They recover their sight and immediately they follow Jesus. I mean, these blind men, surely they could have stayed in in Jericho, right? To see the the sights and the people and the places that they'd only encountered over their lifetime by their other senses. But they recognized in that moment the value, the supremacy of the one who healed them, that it far outweighed those things that they wanted to experience. They left everything behind and they followed Christ on the road to Jerusalem. Friends, that this story of Jesus' healing Two blind men who call out for mercy sounds familiar. Well, it should because we've already looked at a similar healing earlier in Matthew's gospel in chapter nine, Matthew nine. So why do you think that Matthew felt it was necessary to include this healing of the blind as, as well as the earlier one? Well, we can't know for, for sure why Matthew includes it here at the tail end of, of the book, but perhaps, perhaps that Matthew... He wants us to see that this healing and the men's response to Jesus, kind of a, of a parable of what happens, really, as I'm, what I'm thinking is maybe that in between the first healing and the second healing, we're, we're to see this, this gap, this distance, distance as kind of a, a parable of the growth into understanding who Jesus is and what he came to do. Jesus' ministry was a process of people's eyes being increasingly open to the reality of who he was and what he'd come to do. And in Matthew 9, Jesus charged the blind man. He said, do not tell anybody what I just did. But what did they do? They disregarded his instruction and they went away and spread his fame. Well, here the newly sighted men. They don't run away. They follow Christ because they know exactly who he is. He is the Lord. He's the son of David. One last thing before we move to chapter 21. Did you know that Mark and his gospel gives us the name of one of these blind men? One of the beggars was a man named Bartimaeus. It's the only healing miracle in the gospels, in the synoptics at least, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in which we're given the name of the one who's healed. It's like Mark is kind of like subtly dropping the source of his material in this story. It's like he's saying, you want to verify that this account is true? Well, go talk to Bartimaeus. Go speak with the one whom Jesus healed. He's still alive and he still follows the risen Christ. Tradition states that Bartimaeus became a member and leader of the church of Jerusalem in the years following Jesus'
0: ascension. For the rest of his life, he was a living testimony with the compassion of the king.
1: Number two, the king's procession. Let's move to chapter 21. Verse 1 of chapter 21, it skips ahead to the end of the journey. Jesus, along with his disciples and the large entourage on the road, they had nearly finished the steep climb to Jerusalem. And they, they approached the city from the east where they arrived on the southwestern slope of the Mount of Olives, whose, whose three ridges overlook Jerusalem. Pick it up in verse 1. And when they drew near to Jerusalem and they came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anything, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. One thing you immediately notice about this text is that nothing in this scene is coincidental. Nothing. The disciples did not wander in the Bethphage, happen to kind of notice a couple donkeys hitched to a post and think to themselves, you know what? I think Jesus might like to ride on that. No, no, Jesus is in complete control. He sets up the entire thing. And while it's possible that Jesus had sent someone ahead of the disciples on an errand to, to arrange for the use of those animals, that's not the impression that you get when you read the text, is it? The impression you get is that Jesus knows about the donkey and her colt because he is exercising supernatural divine knowledge and authority over these events. Just like he did in Matthew 17 when he told Simon Peter that the first fish that he caught would have a coin in its mouth to pay the temple tax. Remember that? Or just like he did when he predicted three times the exact nature of his betrayal, his sufferings, his, his death and resurrection. Jesus' authority and his omniscience should not surprise us. It's just one additional proof that he is both Lord and Christ. He's both divine and human, 100% God, 100% man. The question is, friends, why does Jesus set things up this way? Why does he supernaturally arrange for the disciples to retrieve the donkey and her colt without resistance from the owners? That seems really strange, doesn't it? Really random. What's the point? Well, the point is that Jesus is about to publicly broadcast his, his messianic identity with ultra HD level clarity. There's going to be no doubt. Jesus didn't, didn't send for the donkeys because he's tired of walking or anything mundane like that. No, he wanted to paint an unmistakable picture of who he is and what he came to do. This entire scene, friends, is Jesus finally going public with his identity as the Messiah, Do you remember back in Matthew 16 what Jesus told his disciples on the heels of Peter confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Matthew writes this at the end of that whole exchange. Jesus strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he is the Christ. Jesus didn't want his disciples to run a PR campaign about his messianic identity. And if you think about it, Jesus didn't even refer to himself like we do. He didn't call himself the Christ. He used a more enigmatic title. He called himself the Son of Man. Jesus wanted the disciples to keep his identity private up to this point because his his hour, as he calls it, his hour had not yet come. Jesus knew that anyone who claimed to be the king of the Jews would by nature threatened the Jewish political and religious rulers, as well as the Romans who occupied Jerusalem. He did not want the people to conceive of him as a political Messiah. He didn't want to trigger his arrest before the time was right. But now, friends, that appointed hour had come. Now as he processes into Jerusalem, he takes actions that would have been like waving a sign with neon letters, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Christ, your king has arrived. The time had come to publicly declare his identity and really to throw down the gauntlet before the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, as we'll see in the rest of chapters 21 to 23. Jesus is taking actions that will lead directly to
0: his crucifixion. And yet, notice the way that Jesus goes public with his identity as the promised King.
1: You would expect the one promised to sit on the throne of the universe to declare his
0: identity with pomp, with majesty, power. But Jesus departs from the script. He doesn't send for a war horse. He sends for a workhorse, or something less than. Doesn't have the
1: disciples bring him a white stallion decked for battle? He sends them on errand to bring him a lowly donkey and her piddly colt. He's going to ride into
0: Jerusalem on a steed fit for a child. Why? Well, Matthew tells us in verses four and five of chapter 21,
1: this took place to fulfill. What was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Friends, this is the ninth time, the ninth time Matthew has interrupted a story in his gospel to give us kind of his 40,000 foot narrative perspective with statements like this. This was to fulfill what was written. This was to fulfill what was spoken. In other words, <laughs> you don't miss this, right? God has kept his word. All God's promises, all the prophecies, all the patterns of redemption in the Old Testament, they find their yes and their amen And this long-awaited king, Jesus. He's come to bring God salvation. Of course, the passage that Matthew quotes here is from the prophet Zechariah. We read a portion of chapter 9 earlier in the service, and Matthew quotes it here. Friends, so if we were to read all of Zechariah 9, kind of put it in context, we'd see that, that Zechariah, he encourages God's beleaguered people with the hope of a coming day when, when God himself would come to fully and finally save his people and crush their enemies. And, and yet, how is God going to do that? Zechariah says it's coming that victory comes through his chosen king. Listen again to the words of Zechariah 9:9. You can pull out your worship guide or turn there in your Bibles. Zechariah 9:9, "Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey." I will cut off The Lord says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Friends, how is God going to subdue the nations? How's he going to
0: bring final restoration to God's people? Through a mighty king who rides meekly the foal of a donkey comes in humility, comes in peace. Careful readers of the Old Testament might also recall Jacob's deathbed
1: prophecy to Judah in Genesis 49. You might just write this down, look at it later. Genesis 49 Jacob promises Judah that the king would come from Judah's ancestral line, and in that prophecy, Jacob uses the imagery of this coming king binding his donkey's colt, to the choicest vine and bringing in an abundant harvest. Or perhaps you recall that according to 2 Samuel 15 and 16, the great descendant of Judah, King David himself, ascended the Mount of Olives
0: weeping after quelling the rebellion of his son Absalom. And then in chapter 16, King David rode into Jerusalem on a donkey signifying that he had not come to make war and vengeance, but he returned in peace. Friends, in this one action, in this one action of
1: Jesus riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, it's like we see a messianic kaleidoscope refracting scripture after scripture that he fulfills. By riding in on this donkey's colt, it's like Jesus is getting out his big prophetic messianic megaphone and shouts as loudly as he possibly can i am the great king long foretold from judah's line i am david's promised son who follows david's pattern of suffering in order to bring his people peace i am zachariah's promised king come to establish a global kingdom through my humility and meekness I've come in pomp and circumstance and glory. I've come in lowliness. I haven't come to make war on the Romans. I've come to make war on sin and Satan. I've come to make peace through the blood of my cross. You see, in signaling his identity through this picture of humility, Jesus was also signaling his mission, what he came to do. His procession to the throne comes only by way of his death for sinners like you and me. In verses 6 and following, the disciples execute Jesus' command. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Two real quick notes as an aside. Number one, Jesus was not confused by Zachariah's prophecy. He, He didn't think that you know, Zechariah was talking about two donkeys. You now he knew Zechariah was talking about one donkey. I think the reason that Jesus sent for two is easily explained by Mark and Luke's note that this, this young donkey on which Jesus rode had never been ridden before. And so it's likely that, that Jesus instructs his disciples to bring the mother along too, so that this unbroken, unridden donkey would remain calm in the midst of the bustling crowds on the road that day. Others have accused the end of verse 7... Of being ludicrous. How could Jesus sit on them? Both donkeys? Well, of course, this phrase doesn't mean that at all, right? Jesus didn't do the splits and ride into Jerusalem straddling both, you know, animals like the circus or something. The the them at the end of verse 7 is clearly referencing the cloaks that his disciples draped over the donkeys as a makeshift saddle they sat on, he sat on them, the cloaks. Okay, notes over. Friends, by judging the reaction of the crowds in verse 8, do you think that they comprehended comprehended this, this messianic picture that Jesus painted for them? Absolutely. Remember, this is almost certainly the same crowd that saw him heal the blind man outside Jericho with his mere touch. They had come with him on this pilgrimage into Jerusalem. And no doubt they knew the prophecies. They knew that the promised Messiah would give sight to the blind. They knew that he was foretold to ride on a donkey's colt. And so when they see this happen, and they fit all this together and see these puzzle pieces coming together. What do they do? They respond by acclaiming Jesus as the king he is. Verse 8, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Again, it's like these puzzle pieces finally clicked into place for this group traveling with Jesus. And they rightly believed that Jesus was the long-awaited king. So what did they do? Well, they, they took their garments, they cut palm branches from the trees, And they put together on the ground what amounts to a poor man's red carpet. And they usher the king into Jerusalem with as much honor and royalty and dignity as they could muster. The crowds hail Jesus as the Messiah King with the words of Psalm 118, 25 and 26, which was part of our call to worship at the beginning of today's gathering. Take a peek at your worship guide. You'll see that Psalm 118, 25
0: begins with the words what? Psalm 118:25. What is it? How does it begin? Look at your worship guide. What's the first words? Save us. Those words are literally the word Hosanna
1: in Hebrew or Hosanna in Aramaic. The people are crying out over and over and over again these words of Psalm 118:25. Save us. O Lord. Now by Jesus' time, it's likely that the word Hosanna had morphed from a word of prayer into kind of more of a word of praise, something more like hallelujah. That's why they cried Hosanna to the Son of David. They were praising the Messiah King, one who led the procession of God's people according to Psalm 118, the one who came in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But yet, isn't it deeply ironic that in this word of praise, this cry of Hosanna, the crowd was implicitly crying
0: out for God to save them through Jesus the King. And friends, that is exactly what Jesus did on Friday through Sunday, this Passion Week. He would answer that cry for rescue by giving his life as as an atoning sacrifice for sinners. Friends,
1: if you're here and not a Christian this morning, hopefully by now you're starting to see and understand and just kind of feel that the Bible is not God's HR manual for Christians, okay? It's not some book that's merely filled with do's and dotes and and rules and regulations, although there, there is lots of instruction in the Bible. But above all, the Bible is an epic story that spans millennia of how God acted in love to redeem and rescue humanity who had rebelled against him. Although each one of us was born in sin and by nature, our own nature reject our creator's kingship and our father's love and are so separated from God, God made a way for us to be restored and our sin to be forgiven. This is what the Bible's all about. It's what this gospel of Matthew is all about. In love, God came after us in the form of Jesus, the Son, our King. Jesus, friends, lived the life that you and I were supposed to live, but didn't and failed so miserably too. And then he died the death that we deserve, the eternal death that we deserve. He died that death on the cross to satisfy God's eternal justice that our sin earned. On the cross, God treated Jesus as if he were the great sinner, not you and me. And in what can only be described as
0: unmatched love, our king took our place in judgment. Jesus didn't die for his own sins, but for ours. You say, John, what makes you so confident that Jesus isn't an imposter? Like, couldn't he have kind of just staged this whole donkey thing is an elaborate con. Well, usually a good resurrection from the dead puts that type of skepticism to bed,
1: right? Jesus called his shot. He had prophesied about his death and resurrection. He pictured his kingship to fulfill Zechariah's prophecy. And then he made good on all of it. He died to take God's judgment and payment for our sins. And then he rose from the dead to prove God accepted the payment. And now God the Father has installed Jesus the Son as King and Lord over all. You see, friends, a day is coming. A day is coming when Jesus will once again
0: ride. But this time, this coming ride, it's not going to ride in peace and meekness and suffering. He'll ride to make war and to conquer and to
1: fully judge all those who have rejected God's rule. Listen to the words of Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse The one sitting on it called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. On His robe and on His thigh,
0: He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Friends, how much better to bow before King Jesus now in confident love and faith while there is still time and to bow with coerced, fearful rejection when Jesus returns in the the season for God's mercy for mankind's rebellion has come to an end. Look again at how our text closes in Matthew twenty-one ten and 11. When he entered Jerusalem,
1: the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? The crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The Galilean crowd's answer to their Judean counterpart's question, it was not inaccurate. Jesus is a prophet. He was from Nazareth. But their answer, while true, it wasn't complete, was it? Jesus wasn't an ordinary prophet of God. He's the God of the prophets. He's the long-awaited capital P prophet,
0: capital P priest, capital K king. Our Savior. Brothers and sisters of Redeeming Grace Church, one of the the challenges
1: of a text like this is that for the most part, it doesn't tell us to do anything. It merely gives us a snapshot of the person and work of Christ. Matthew's goal is for us to see who Jesus is, see what he does, and respond accordingly. But when you think about it, the text does implicitly instruct us to do something. The scripture that Jesus fulfills, Zechariah 9.9, it starts like this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud,
0: O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. If the crowd on the road
1: could respond with their incomplete understanding of Jesus' identity with an explosion of praise, And surely we who look back with full understanding on Jesus' person and work on this side of the cross should be marked with an unmatched joy and vibrant worship, both in our daily lives and in the corporate life of the church. Friends, our gatherings, when we gather on the Lord's Day, our gatherings ought to be marked by passionate, full-throated Worship, this response to the majesty, the humility, the love of our crucified and risen King. Do you think that when you get to heaven and you see Jesus, the King who redeemed you and ransomed you and is gonna reign, you're gonna
0: reign alongside him for all eternity, that your response is gonna be, all glory be to No. With a heart and a voice no longer hindered, with distractions and suffering and sin, we will shout Hosanna to the King. There's no question that Jesus is God's promised King. The question is, will you honor him as yours? Oh, friend, I pray that our response even now might be a faint echo of our full response to our King. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, all glory be to you, our King. All glory be to you. Thank you for writing. In such humility and meekness.
1: Thank you for suffering in our place. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. Thank you for your model of compassion to the outcast, which pictures what you, even you did on the cross to redeem sinners like us. Those who had no right to your love
0: by our, by our very nature. No claim to your promises. You have brought us near to the blood of Christ. Father, may this snapshot of our King today change us.
1: May it inspire us. May it provoke our worship in the
0: days and weeks to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.